He might not be the king of all baseball media, but he's a prince. We'll talk with Joe Sheehan next on Baseball HQ Radio. Robinson waits. Here comes the pitch. And there goes the line drive to left field. Swan is after it. He leaps the over his head against the wall. Here comes Gillian Stewart. Feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. Levels the bat a couple of times. Shaw kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. There it is. There it is. Get out. Get out. in the air to deep center. Finley back, away back, on the track, at the wall, gone! A three-run home run for Scott Brocious. Scott Brocious might well be... The left-handers line. The 0-2 pitch on the way. Strike! It's over! He has done it! High fastball, Randy Johnson being mobbed by Scott Bradley down to greet him and the entire Mariner team here on the 2nd of June. It ends at 9.51 Pacific Daylight. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 4th, show number 3 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to a long conversation with Joe Sheehan, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator discussing scarcity at first base. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Kansas City outfield prospect Will Myers. And in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about the Adam Dunn conundrum. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Less than two weeks till pitchers and catchers. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League and leading off the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. You know, Nick, uh, looking around the National League East, the Washington Nationals have been something of a doormat, but uh, all of a sudden they look like they might be competitive, and they've added another arm for their rotation in Edwin Jackson. How does that look from a Nationals' perspective and especially from a fantasy perspective? You know, it's it's uh, they're they're now looking very interesting with their rotation. Jackson probably slots in at the third or fourth spot in the rotation, uh, and overall a pretty strong rotation looking for the Nationals. Edwin Jackson, Edwin Jackson is one of those kind of interesting guys who, who has a lot of potential, uh, has performed very well uh, a couple of different times, uh, but at the same time he's he's uh, 28 years old and he's been with six different teams. This would now be his seventh. So there's also something there you look at thinking, well, these guys everybody wants him, but nobody wants him for very long. Um, Jackson came over back to the National League, was pitching for the White Sox, came back to the National League to St. Louis last year, and we really expected to see what might have been a, a real second-half uh, explosion in the last two months from Jackson after his return to St. Louis. I mean, here's a guy uh, pitching with an ERA just kind of below three, coming back to the National League. Uh, should have done very well, and that didn't happen. 
Um, pitched okay in August and September. A 3.99 ERA in August, 3.58 in September. Um, so it was okay, but his XERAs were over four in both months. And his return to the National League didn't generate perhaps the um, uh, the kind of uh, upside that we would have expected from him. And that's kind of where we are with Edwin Jackson. He's a good pitcher. Uh, he's got lots of potential. Um, who knows whether he's going to pitch very well in a particular season. The thing that you notice with Jackson as you watch him is his um, his command rates stay about the same. Command rates being uh, strikeouts divided by walks stay about the same. If he gets more strikeouts, he issues more walks. Uh, if he gets his walks down, he gets less strikeouts. Um, so he's kind of a kind of a sort of uh, you've got to project Jackson as sort of a mid-level kind of guy. Uh, we're projecting, I think, an ERA uh, right around four uh, for the season. Uh, maybe 11, 12 wins, something like that in Washington. Um, and, and that makes him sort of a neutral fantasy guy. He's not going to make a lot of money. He might lose a dollar or two. He's always been fairly good at keeping the ball in the park, fairly low fly ball ratios, so maybe the move is, is going to be helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about Edwin Jackson, maybe. Uh, Nick, it sounds like maybe a little more than you are. Uh, maybe so. I mean, uh, he's certainly shown some, some, had some very good seasons in the past. Uh, at times looked like he was really ready to, to become an elite pitcher. Uh, I think he's one of those guys that's worth, worth taking a chance on at draft time. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't spend a real high draft choice on him, I think. In Colorado, they've been moving parts around, and one of the deals they made was to acquire Marco Scudero from the Boston Red Sox, and apparently he's going to be playing second base. This looked like a salary dump for luxury tax purposes by the Red Sox, and of course, uh, this opens up a lot of questions about their shortstop position, but how does Marco Scudero look to you as a possible second baseman in Colorado? You know, this, this is kind of interesting. I mean, we're not talking about a, uh, a top-level second baseman, certainly, but if you look at his... If you look at his numbers over the years, uh, here's a guy with a very good batting eye, makes good contact. Last year, a 91% contact rate, a batting eye of 1.06. Um, so here's a guy who hit for a, should hit for a decent average. Uh, last three seasons, his batting average has been uh, 282, 275, and then 299. Uh, expected batting average is lower than that because he doesn't have a lot of speed or a lot of power. But those numbers should play pretty well in Colorado. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he could uh, put up a 300 batting average at the second base slot in Colorado. As, a, as we said, kind of below average speed and power, but he does hit a home run every now and then and steal a base every now and then. So um, as a sort of uh, mid-level, lower-level choice at second base in Colorado, a very interesting pick, I think. Yeah, for the last three years, he's quietly been in double digits. In 2009, he was up around $17, $18 worth of value, probably was on a good number of championship fantasy rosters, I'm guessing, because he would have been a fairly low-round pick. The uh, thin air in Colorado is not as um, helpful to batting as a lot of people seem to think, but it is a help. Right, yeah, definitely. So, you know, I I, uh, I wouldn't expect to see a home run explosion out of him, but uh, but his B.A. and, and, and th- the thin air in Colorado does help batting average, uh, and uh, he could do very well in that category. And his speed score, although you mentioned it's nothing to write home about, certainly uh, not causing Jacoby Ellsbury any sleepless nights, but for the last four years, 104, 100, 101, and 92, so right around league average. Last year maybe dipped a little, which is, might have been a, a result of the team that he was playing for, not giving him quite as many chances, and he wasn't playing quite as often. He was hurt a little bit, so... You know, this this is guy, I think he probably has a chance to finish up around maybe six, seven stolen bases, could get you 10 home runs and hit 300. Yeah, very definitely. So I think an interesting pick in what's not a, uh, 
not an, an overly strong second base field in the National League. Yeah, that's an excellent point. The best of a bad lot sometimes, and you have to be a little bit concerned about position scarcity at second base, I think, in both leagues, but in the National League in particular, it's looking a little thin. Over in Milwaukee, all of a sudden, their run scoring potential is looking very thin. Uh, Prince Fielder, of course, has left for um, the uh, sunnier climbs in Detroit, if we can call them that. And it looks like Matt Gamble's going to be their choice, at least to start with, to play first base. Uh, Matt Gamble's had a few chances in the past, hasn't done a lot with him. Yeah, you know, Matt Gamble is one of those guys who still uh, still exudes potential, but he's getting up in age now at age 26. And uh, he does always does well in the PCL. Uh, last year, 28 home runs, uh, 310 uh, batting average. Uh, that looks pretty good. But when you look at major league equivalents, uh, not so much. And his, his certainly his major league productivity over the last uh, the last three years has not been very good. And uh, limited play, 171 at bats, two two twenty two batting average, five home runs in the major league. So uh, here's a guy who looks like he's finally going to get his chance to play. Uh, the potential flag is still there, but uh, you, you, a guy you also need to be kind of careful with, I think, at draft time, uh, because the uh, he certainly has flopped big time so far in the majors. Uh, first base may be better for him than third base. He was certainly defensively challenged at third base. Uh, so we're looking at, in terms of projections, maybe 14 home runs, 245 batting average, uh, something in that in that area. Um, he could do much worse than that, and, and his, his, his major league uh, performance in the past says that that's entirely possible. Sometimes owners, when they're looking around, look at a guy and say, well, at least he's got a path to playing time and assume that because he's on opening day, he's on the roster and he's playing a position that on on the last day of the season, he's going to still be there, still playing and having amassed 550 at-bats. But there's a real playing time risk here in addition to a skills risk, don't you think, Nick? That Oh, very, yeah, very definitely. I mean, this is a guy who may not make it out of spring training with a job. If he doesn't, uh, if he doesn't show in spring training, my guess is Milwaukee's going to be looking for some, some other way of filling that slot. And I wonder what that might be. Uh, they they have some options, but not a lot of options. Uh, Milwaukee looks like they're in some lineup trouble, especially if Ryan Braun ends up having that suspension upheld. Yeah, very definitely. Finally, Nick, in Philadelphia, the outfield situation is certainly going to be changing. Raul Abanez is gone, and uh, they've got a couple of guys who should be intriguing, to say the least, as far as fantasy owners are concerned. Uh, the first name I'd like to bring up with you is Dominic Brown. And we have a kind of a 10-step path to stardom, we call it in uh, BaseballHQ.com, uh, the Alex Rodriguez path, it's called, where a guy comes up with a ton of hype, as, as Rodriguez did, and certainly as Dominic Brown did, and uh, they kind of struggle because they came up too soon and a little bit too young. Then they go back, get their head together, and come back the second time and really live up to the hype after it's all kind of died away. Is Dominic Brown falling into that pattern, do you think? Is this a real buying opportunity? I think it really is a buying opportunity. You're seeing Dominic Brown get dumped in a number of leagues right now, and as people do their do their keeper league choices, and uh, and for good reason. I mean, if you've had him a couple of years and he hasn't produced, uh, certainly there may, may be reason to say, uh, I'm not sure I want to keep this up. But but Dominic Brown is only 24 years old. Uh, last season had had a wrist injury early in the year, may have sapped his power all year, so he hasn't shown the kind of power and speed perhaps that we we would like him to have at the major leagues yet, but. Here's a guy who's a real uh, a power speed double tr- a double threat, and, and you know at 24 years old, it, it's, this may not be his season. Uh, I'm not saying that Dominic Brown's going to break out this year. Uh, he had, needs to consolidate some skills, but if you look at what happened last year, his his batting eye was better in the majors. 
His uh, walk rate was better in the majors. His contact rate was better in the majors. Uh, a lot of growth going on, uh, even under an, an injury uh, injury cloud from early in the season. So uh, certainly a possibility that Dominic Brown could do very well this year. Uh, if you're in a keeper league, a good time maybe to get him on your roster and tuck him away for for uh, 2013 because that could be the real breakout year for Dominic Brown. This is going to be a really interesting story, Nick. I think to watch during spring training is, is what happens to Dominic Brown as far as the Phillies are concerned because they signed Lance Nix to play some outfield and he could he could figure into the outfield mix, especially if Brown gets off to a slow start in spring training. They might think, okay, back to the minors, give him a month to get his act together, make sure his hand is all right and all these kind of things. But if he cracks the big league roster coming north from spring training, um, boy, I, I like the look of this kid. He's got a lot of different things going on that could really help a fantasy team. Yeah, he really does. And uh, you're right. You're right. You need to see what happens during spring training. And of course, Lance Nix has got another spot he can play as well. Yeah, and also in the outfield of we're a little higher and a little more confident about John Mayberry Jr., who really consolidated his skills in the second half last year. Uh, he did, but you know, right now the Phillies say that Lance Nix is going to platoon with uh, with John Mayberry. At least that's the, that's the story. One day, the next day, there we're hearing that John Mayberry is uh, is the candidate, is the guy in left field. It's his boy. It's his uh, his gig to lose. So hard to know exactly what the Phillies are going to be doing, except using spring training to figure out what they're doing in the outfield. John Mayberry, a, a nice article this morning by Joe Hoffer on the Baseball HQ website about John Mayberry, looking at uh, at his last year and looking at his potential. He did consolidate skills in the second half last year. Um, his uh, expected batting average, his batting eye improved, his walk rate improved, his contact rate improved. Um, things that, that made him look pretty good in the second half. At the same time, he had a, uh, a rather large home run per fly rate at 22%, and that's not likely to happen again. So um, we've got a guy who looks like a, a kind of um, solid solid outfielder going into this season. Um, could do better than folks expected, but that second half might just inflate his, inflate his overall price, and we, you need to watch out for that at, the, at draft time. The other thing to remember is John Mayberry is 28 years old, so this is not a, uh, a young guy anymore. He's, uh, he's kind of gotten out of growth phase uh, into what should be his, his, uh, playing, his playing phase of his career. He's going to stay at the same level or, or grow just a little bit over the next few years, but no, don't expect gigantic growth out of John Mayberry. So I see him as a very solid outfield choice, but also maybe overpriced based on last year's second half. And of course, the price is the thing, whether in dollars or the round. Uh, one thing I liked about his second half last year, Nick, his fly ball percentage went up and his power index went up a lot in the second half from July to October. So um, whether you believe in second half being a precursor of the next full season or not, and there's some evidence to suggest that, that it is, there's other evidence that suggests it's overstated, John Mayberry, at the very least, an intriguing possibility. Very definitely. I think certainly an interesting possibility going into this season. Nick, thanks very much. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League. It's BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball's coming, Patrick. Can't wait. I know, barely two weeks till pitchers and catchers. Uh, what are we, about a nine weeks away, eight weeks away from opening day. So one of the best times of the year, all the anticipation. This is when uh, all fantasy owners are really starting to get into that pre-draft mode, which is the most exciting time of the year for many of us. And in Cleveland, there's a bit of excitement, I guess, if you can call it that. Uh, Casey Kochman has signed with the Indians. Well, I think it's a good move for them. He certainly is one of those guys who's a winner 
without making a lot of waves. Uh, he did hit 308 last year, but his expected batting average is only 270. He had a high 34% hit rate last year, but I think his expected batting average is what we expect. We have him pegged for 275 this year, maybe 10 homers, 53 RBIs or something. But Costner's got a great glove. He's more of a simulation player than a roto player. Um, he's one of those guys who quietly helps you win. The Tribe fans in Cleveland are not that excited about this signing. Um, but Koshman does improve them, especially in the field. they got a ground ball-oriented pitching staff, and uh, Koshman will really help them solidify that infield defensively. And Matt Laporta wasn't giving them anything offensively. Neither was Lou Marson. He, he was behind the plate, and Carlos Santana moved to first. So Koshman will help the Indians just more in a consistent uh, way without sticking out that much, you know, maybe 10 homers the whole year. But just one of those solid ball players, sort of a John Olerud, Lyle Overbay type that just helps you win. That good glove is more than just scooping up ground balls. It also means rescuing bad throws from those young infielders. That could help as well. Absolutely. And as Drupal Cabrera is an excellent glove man up the middle to team with those guys. So between Koshman and Cabrera, there should be a great steady influence in that infield. You know, last year in Tampa, you mentioned he, he had a 300 season. He was battling for the batting title for quite a while during the year. Finished the year with the same 10 home runs that we're projecting this year, around 50 RBIs. You know, that's a very quiet, mid-teen dollar value season. And, and if you're in a rotisserie league where you're auctioning, that's a, a fair likelihood. You might be able to get him for substantially less than mid-teens in dollars, depending on how your league shakes out. And given all the first basemen that are in the American League this year, this guy could be without um, overstating the case, he could be quite a value. It depends on whether people are going to bid on his 308 average. I wouldn't pay for that again. But most leagues, batting average is one of those categories that's undervalued. So you could get him uh, based on the fact that it was a one-year anomaly and people don't really value batting average. Uh, one of my pieces this year on Market Pulse this week here, I'm going to be talking about first base being a scarce position, and that makes guys like Kochman, as you mentioned, a pretty good value in a auction format where you can pay bottom dollar for him. The Indians also made another quality kind of move with a less than big name in Dan Wheeler, who joins the Tribe bullpen. This is a guy who's very underrated, one of the guys... Uh, we call Lima middle relievers here at Baseball HQ. This guy's expected ERA last year was 371, uh, and it's been consistently good each of the past several years. He hasn't had a whip below, or excuse me, 1.3 or above since 2007. So that's, what, four straight years of a whip of about 1.1. Last year it was 1.11. Last year he had a 29% hit rate, but only a 65% strand rate. Extremely low for a reliever. He had a 4.9 command, struck out more than seven batters per nine innings, and only walked one and a half per nine innings. So this guy's an excellent reliever. His only fly in the ointment here is 46% fly ball rate. He's always given up the long ball. But I think he's really going to have some opportunities here in Cleveland. Chris Perez's skills were horrible last year. His strikeout rate went down to 5.9, and I think Wheeler could very well ease his way into the a few saves here during the course of the year uh, if Perez struggles in Cleveland. And at the very least, he's going to be pitching relatively late in games, which means maybe a chance to vulture a few wins that he didn't get that chance in Boston where he was kind of one of those fifth, sixth inning guys that was just brought in when the case seemed hopeless uh, because they had other options, and I think they lost confidence in Dan Wheeler. I'm interested that you say that uh, Chris Perez could be on the hot seat in there. Do you think that that's really, the, really a case that Chris Perez, who's going to be the incumbent closer, could lose that role? I don't think early in the season. I think in the Indians' mind, he's firmly entrenched in that role. But that's why we say draft skills not roles, and 
the skills of Wheeler and the poor skills of Perez, if Perez doesn't bounce back and he struggles through the first half of the season, uh, I think he's definitely a candidate at that point to be replaced. I think uh, fans will have a short leash for him, and so will the front office. If the Tribe, and I think they're going to be a sleeper team this year, their pitchers all look like they're going to be better. And uh, with Shinsu Chu coming back, Grady Sizemore coming back, I think there's a lot of things to like in Cleveland. Jason Kipnis emerging, Lonnie Chisenhall at third base. They could be a real uh, underdog team this year that could really compete. And I don't think if if that's the case, they're not going to stick around with a Chris Perez in the closer role if he struggles again. And returning to Wheeler, uh, not a lot of people might be aware of this, but twice in the last seven seasons, he's been double-digit rotisserie value because of uh, his tremendous whip, as you mentioned, and uh, very low ERAs and all supported by his skills. So keep an eye on Dan Wheeler. Keep him in the back of your mind at your draft. Uh, Another closer, we talked about Chris Perez struggling in Cleveland. Another AL Central closer who struggled was Matt Capps in Minnesota. He's going to be the closer at least to start the year again there. Matt, what do you think of... uh, Matt Caps. Well, he certainly struggled last year. He's going to have to rekindle some of his previous glory, get the ball back on the ground, and get control of the strike zone. Last year in the first half, he had a 5.3 command, but only a 23% hit rate. And the reason is because he had a 1.1 uh, walks per nine innings. In the second half, however, his strikeout rate fell to 4.7 per nine innings. And instead of being a ground ball pitcher as he was in 2010 when he got half of his outs on the ground, it went down to 40% uh, in 2011, and that meant a fly ball rate of 41%. So he had a 27% hit rate, so he's even worse than we thought. So I think there's a lot of reasons to think that Caps uh, will struggle coming out of the gate here in 2012, unless it was just an injury situation or a temporary slump. He's got to regain his previous form. He does own those skills, but he's got to get the ball back on the ground, uh, increase his strikeout rate a little bit, and then get his uh, command and strikeouts to walk under control because he, he lost his control as well by walking more batters in the second half of 2011. On the other hand, uh, Matt, it's not such a bad thing to be a fly ball pitcher in target field where fly balls go to die. It isn't, but if you're not striking out anyone, uh, that's, a, that's a very dangerous mixture. When Caps became effective is when he transitioned. He was a fly ball pitcher early in his career, and he transitioned that he didn't have that same... Uh, strikeout stuff anymore so as he realized that he became a ground ball pitcher and that's what made him so effective in 2010 so I think he needs to rekindle that for his effectiveness in 2011 and half the games are played outside of target field and as we know the American League has a lot more band boxes in it than the National League. Well, the Central certainly has the the White Sox playing a small park. Cleveland's a relatively small park. Detroit's fairly big, though, So, and Kansas City plays, I think, a little negative for home runs. But the uh, the point is well made. There are other parks they play in as well. Over in Boston, speaking of bandbox parks, Jared Saltalamacchia had a pretty decent year last year with 16 home runs. Uh, what is the likelihood that he returns a uh, good, solid value in 2012? Well, I think what you see is what you're going to get. He's going to give you a low average and some home runs. His expected batting average last year was 245, a little higher than his 235, but his contact rate fell from 72% to 67%. When you look at the years where he was in the major league the entire year, as opposed to trying to convert things from the minors, 67% sort of is his contact rate in the major leagues. That's kind of down around Adam Dunn area. 
Uh, his power next was 172, so that was solid. But the other thing that concerns us is his walk rate fell to 6%. Saltalamaki has shown great plate patience in the minor leagues, but again, when he's in the major leagues all season, his walk rate is only 6%. So he is still working on his game, still trying to adjust to the major league level, and we need to see some improvement there before we would project him to... Uh, perform significantly better than he has in the past. The only thing that may help him is Ryan Lavarnaway coming up, pressuring him from the minor leagues. Maybe that will uh, help Saltalamakia figure it out and move forward in his progress. But right now, there's nothing in the numbers that say he would do that. Well, there is one number that maybe gives small reason for confidence or optimism, and that is he's 26 years old, he's coming 27 years old, and catchers, uh, we have often argued at BaseballHQ.com, catchers develop a little later in their batting skills because it's so hard to master the defensive side of the, of the spectrum. I agree with that, and that's one of the things we talked about in our Market Pulse column. Uh, catchers Yadier Molina is one of those guys who's increasing his power as he gets older and more experienced in the role of catcher. Uh, so there's a lot of guys that we do that. I think Kurt Suzuki is a guy who's going to start doing that as well. But uh, Saltamakia may do it. We just don't know when. And if you're bidding on him for this year, right now there's no statistical signs that he'll do so. In Oakland, uh, they seem to be remodeling their franchise on the uh, idea of amassing young pitchers with uh, great upside and as many outfielders as they can possibly jam onto the roster. But one guy who seems to be something of a shining light, based on last year at least, is uh, starting pitcher Brandon McCarthy. He had a really good year last year. Well, McCarthy is interesting. A lot has been made of the park effect moving from Texas to Oakland, which obviously was a significant part of his progress. But there's some other things that happened. He's really changed the way he pitched. He started pitching to contact. In his previous career, he was a fly ball pitcher, and his ground ball rate was 47% last year. Before that, 42% of balls in play had always been in the air. So he really changed his approach on the mound, and as he's done that, he's gotten better control. Before 2010, he'd walked three and a half batters for nine innings, uh, since then, though, his control was 1.3 in 2011 and 1.9 in 2010, so he's gotten progressively significantly better each year by getting the ball over the plate and pitching to contact. Now that he's comfortable with that, his dominance has risen from 6.5 all the way up to 7.2 in the second half last year. It's a four-year increasing trend. So McCarthy has a lot of good things trending in his direction uh, as far as adapting as a pitcher as he's gotten more mature and more experienced. The one thing we probably can't count on is going to be a lot of wins. I know a lot of that is out of the pitcher's hands, but it does depend on a team scoring runs. It does depend on a good bullpen, and really the A's look like a work in progress, don't they? Yeah, I do, and actually I think he's got a very big trade chip for Billy Bean because they're not going to be a very good team. And if he's doing well come June, July, he does have some injury history. If I was Billy Bean, I'd be flipping him in a heartbeat this summer. Uh, continue, assuming he continues to pitch as he has. A moment ago when we were talking, Matt, about Jared Saltanamaki, you remember you mentioned his uh, very high strikeout rate, he's uh, 67% contact, and sometimes I think, wouldn't we be better off saying 33% strikeout because it would make it more obvious that he strikes out a lot? But uh, you said that's Adam Dunn territory, and uh, Adam Dunn's an interesting guy to, to think about. Uh, big topic of discussion at First Pitch Arizona last November. Is Adam Dunn going to bounce back? Is he done? Is he going to retire? What's the story? Where do you stand on Adam Dunn? Well, having him one of my uh, Stratomatic teams, I've followed him very closely, and I think, maybe I'm biased, but I really think he's going to back, 
bounce back. He's only 32. He had a 260 average in three of his last five years. His expected batting average has been 258 or higher in each year except 2011. Now, last year only batted 159. His expected batting average is 183. But when you think about a guy changing scenarios into a park, becoming a DH for the first time, having an incredibly rough start, and then, of course, you press. And all year, the hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. I think a fresh start for this guy. I think there's no reason Dunn can't hit 35 homers, and he's not going to win the batting title, of course, but I think he can certainly hit 240 to 260 and and drive in some runs. Uh, Yes, the numbers all point the opposite direction, um, but everything in his previous skill set, and we say once you have a skill, you own it. It's just a matter of displaying it again. He certainly owns those skills, and I think, again, as I've said many times, the mental side of this game we don't talk about and we can't quantify. And I can tell you, if I was struggling that bad and pressing, I'd be so glad to get that year over with and and so excited for a new start to prove to people how good I am. Is there any concern? The uh, He had a real tough time last year with left-handed pitching. His OPS was down to barely 300. And is there a concern that because of that, the management is just going to view this guy as a platoon player for the rest of his career, which is going to cut into his at-bats? Or on the flip side, is that a good thing because it means he gets to wail away uh, very effectively against right-handers and rest his uh, weary bones against those uh, southpaws? It's good for his batting average if he was a platoon player, but for his counting stats, you want him in there every day. I think the White Sox are paying him so much money and I think that they're not planning on being a winning team this year. There's going to be a lot more excitement with Adam Dunn coming to the plate and that anticipation of some moonshot rocketing off his back, whether he's facing a lefty or a righty. I think in the beginning of the season, they're going to give him plenty of chances to hit both lefties and righties alike. As the season wears on, maybe that'll change if he's having another uh, difficult season. But I think out of the box that they want to see him bat as much as he can and get him straightened out because that's the only chance they have to save face from signing his free agent deal. Historically, he's had a lot of trouble with uh, left-handed pitching, even from the home run perspective. He's less than 100 of his 365 career home runs have come against uh, left-handed pitching, although his at-bats against him amount to about uh, maybe a third of his of his total. So I don't know. I, I think there's something to be said. I, if if he doesn't play against left-handers, then that's good for his batting average and and other kind of stats that are ratio-based. If he does play against them, it, his batting average takes a hit, maybe he gets a few more homers, a few more RBIs. Do you think there's any chance he gets up around 80, 85 RBIs again in his career? Uh, I do, and I also think he's a, a opportunity for runs scored. He walks a lot. He's one of the three t- true outcome guys, and when he's going well, pitchers pitch around him, and he's got the patience, as proven over and over again, that he's got the patience to wait the pitcher out to get on base. And that's a good point for any kind of uh, fantasy format that uses on-base percentage instead of batting average. Adam Dunn's value takes a huge jump up, and we've had reports from people who've moved into those kind of leagues that a lot of people undervalue walks, even though on-base percentage is a category. They just somehow lose sight of that, of the value of those walks. So Adam Dunn could be added value under those circumstances. Absolutely, and, and that's a very common thing because it's, it's not talked about as much on broadcast. Now they do show on base percentage, but you know it's what separates the veteran fantasy gamer who looks beyond the surface stats versus the average player. And we can say that people are getting more knowledgeable, and they are, but there's still a lot of casual people coming into the game world. So remember that in your league as you bring new guys in that they're not going to understand some of the nuances that we do here at Baseball HQ. 
just out of curiosity, Ron Chandler's master notes a little later on in this program, we'll also be talking about Adam Dunn and the potential for an Adam Dunn rebound this year. That will be right after your Market Pulse commentary. Matt, what are you talking about this week? We're going to talk about scarcity and how it exists at first base. And that's kind of odd, isn't it? First base is never thought of as a scarce position, but it really is, especially in the National. It is, and overall this year as well. And we've been talking about that for the past three years here at Baseball HQ, that first base, don't overlook it and assume it's not a scarce position. Matt, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, one of the minor league analysts at Baseball HQ. I'm also the co-author, along with Jeremy Deloney, of the 2012 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which is available through Baseball HQ and will be delivered in late January and plenty of time for your 2012 draft prep. The book contains statistical and scouting information on over 1,000 of the best prospects in baseball, along with numerous articles and valuable lists. The book uses all of the invaluable Baseball HQ statistical tools to help you figure out which prospects are likely to have the biggest impact and when they will reach the majors. Order the Minor League Baseball Analyst 2012 now at BaseballHQ.com for $19.95 plus shipping and handling. As a special bonus, if you order the analyst directly from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get an online update of all 30 organizational lists in March 2012 and at the same time an online update of the top 50 fantasy prospects. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Our pleasure now to be joined by one of the finest baseball writers in the business and the author of the Sheehan Newsletter, a very valuable resource for anybody in fantasy baseball and for anybody who just likes good writing about baseball. It's Joe Sheehan, everybody. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick, how you doing? I'm doing fine. And before we get started talking about various topics that you've been covering in the Sheehan Newsletter, maybe you could uh, let us know uh, what fantasy leagues you'll be playing in this year. Well, uh, I've got an NL-only keeper league that i actually got to get ready for here in the city, but I'm also going to be back in AL Tout Wars, which I'm really excited about. I had to miss last year. I had a scheduling conflict, and I love AL Tout Wars, not just for the fact, oh, it's an expert league, and uh, yeah, I'm probably going to get my head handed to me by these great players like Jeff Erickson and, and Ron Chandler, who I think you guys might have heard of Chandler, that Chandler guy. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a great group of guys. And, I mean, for me, playing fantasy is really about that day in the draft room where you hang out with everybody, you crack wise, and you catch up. So I'm very much looking forward to the AL Tower Wars. And then uh, I think I'm going to play NFBC this year. I've never actually played uh, NFBC. Uh, Corey Schwartz from MLB has uh, always pumped it up to me. So I'm going to take a, take a shot at that this year. So I'll have an NL and AL in a mix. One of the big early pieces of news that you covered in the Sheehan newsletter this year was the free agent signing of Prince Fielder in Detroit and this talk in Detroit that they're going to move Miguel Cabrera all 200 and however many pounds of him over to third base where one suspects comparisons with Brooks Robinson are not going to be forthcoming. How are they going to handle this? Can this work? Well, I mean, you know, Jim Leland seems committed to it. Miguel Cabrera, I think, has a strong preference for playing in the field rather than DHing, so he's driving this a little bit. But as a practical matter, it seems to be very difficult to think that Cabrera's going to be able to play third effectively and stay healthy throughout the year. You go back to, he was a regular third baseman in 06 and 07. He was below average, but he wasn't killing uh, anybody. Got to Detroit. He played very poorly for three weeks. Carlos Guillen, who shifted to first base because he had the the bad knee issues, um, couldn't play first base. He was terrible. So three weeks into the season, Cabrera and Guillen flipped. And it was as much because Guillen was poor as as because Cabrera was. But even after Guillen got hurt, 
even Patrick, you look at last year when the when the uh, the Tigers ended up demoting Brandon Inge and really struggled to find a third baseman, Leland never once looked to move Cabrera back to third base. Well, now it's been four years later since he's since he's played third. He's bigger. Let's say conservatively that Cabrera can get down to 255 pounds. He would be the largest regular third baseman in baseball history at 255 pounds. And it's not just whether he can play the position. Let's say he's you know a bad defensive third baseman. 20-25 runs to the bad. Maybe you live with that. I think the bigger issue is the fact that he might get hurt. And if the Tigers lose Miguel Cabrera for a month because he rolled an ankle trying to field a bunt or his elbow hurts because he, you know, he's not used to throwing that often, I think that's the bigger risk here. Plus, in doing this, they're not getting a big bat into the lineup. Next year, Victor Martinez is around. Maybe you have to make allowances. This year, all it does is create space for Andy Dirks or Don Kelly or somebody. So on every level... This is a mistake other than possibly placating the player. I'm very curious to see what happens after we get a good long look at Miguel Cabrera playing third next month. If he is playing third, Joe, is there any research or anybody has looked into how a change in defensive position might affect the ability of a good hitter to hit? Is he going to lose any ground as a hitter because he's got to worry about this defensive shift? No, I I can't give you anything other than uh, anecdotal evidence. Thinking about Chris Coughlin learning center field last year. I go back to the uh, early 1990s with Steve Sachs taking over third base for the Yankees and that failing miserably. I I can come up with anecdotes, but I can't give you a study. The one thing we do know is that there does seem to be a DH penalty in much the same way that there's a pinch hitting penalty and that guys do tend to hit worse when they're DHing rather than when they're in the lineup. So there's that. But as far as does... I can tell you that I think doing on-the-job training at third base is going to hurt Miguel Cabrera's production, but I cannot cite a specific study that tells you that. It's something of a hunch. I hear you on that. You also had a column about the fielder signing itself. It looks like probably an overpay for a guy his age and his size and with the track records of guys like that, but you were very positive about Mike Illich for taking this chance. Because if you're going to own a sports team, you can't treat it like you're owning stock or you're owning the corner grocery store where, oh, okay, we've got to be in the black every quarter. Part of the value of owning a sports team is non-monetary. It's the potential that they're going to hold a parade in your honor going down, I don't know, 8 Mile or whatever the heck the big road is in Detroit. I honestly don't know. Uh, you, kinda, you should want that. And too many owners now, especially with this emphasis on, oh, well, we need revenue sharing because the Yankees make so much money, too many owners are worried about spending other people's money and worried about making sure they, they don't lose any money for a specific quarter. And I'm not saying that you don't run a business. I'm not saying you should necessarily run a business as a charity, but you can't run a sports team the way you run another business. And Mike Illich gets that. Mike Illich is willing to write a very big check and risk losing some money because he wants to win a championship. If you don't want to win a championship, you shouldn't own a sports team. And right now, MLB has this clutch of owners that either are unwilling to spend, I mean, you look at David Glass, who, yeah, he spent some money on the draft, but he's not running a payroll commensurate with his personal wealth. You look at situations in New York and Los Angeles, where, you know, the, the Mets owners obviously are, are in a capital situation. The Dodgers are owned by a man who never had enough money to run a team, and then essentially sucked the team dry of its revenues for his own personal use. So there are so many owners right now that aren't owning a sports team the way a sports team should be owned. Mike Illich is the other guy. Mike Illich is the guy that says, I want to win more than I want to make the next dollar. And I think that should be commended. I think there are a few things that I've been more excited about you know, over the last year or so than Mike Illich, what he's done with signing Prince Fielder. 
And I remember, Joe, reading in various places that discuss the business and economics of sports rather than the on-field performance, is that if he's right and he generates a few extra playoff games, maybe a World Series appearance, it could actually be a profitable investment. If Prince Fielder takes them to Game 7 of the World Series, all of a sudden maybe he's largely paid that $10 million or $20 million bucks or whatever it is. Well, where you get the big money back is, is where the Tigers are right now, which is on the brink of making the playoffs. To go from 65 to 70 wins doesn't make you a whole lot of money. And honestly, to go from 100 to 105, but if you're in that sweet spot where a guy could push you over the top, where so many teams are in an era, Patrick, where we're going to have five playoff teams for, per league, there are nine to ten teams in each league that are probably in that window where if you make that one good signing, take the Nationals with Edmund Jackson, uh, you, you could push yourself over the top. So... I think that there's not enough uh, of a look at the potential revenues. All people look at are the costs, and you make a great point. And not just that, Patrick, but there's a long-term effect, too. If you succeed, you win championships, the value of your franchise goes up. One thing that never gets talked about is the fact that these, these franchises always appreciate in value. So that, I mean, not that Mike Illich is thinking, okay, well, I'm going to sell this thing in five years when I'm 88 years old and make a bunch of money. But, you know, other owners... Are, could be boosting their franchise value by making signings like this. So, yeah, you know, you spend $12 million on a player now. Maybe you only get $10 million back in that current season for the wins, but when you sell the team, your team is worth that much more. So too much short-sightedness, too much worried about cost, not enough worried about winning championships. And not much, not enough worrying about wins in general because they do uh, create revenue. More people want to go see a winner. It's, it's, uh, it's a known fact. I mean, anybody who's ever lived in a major league town in any sport, when LeBron James is, is with the Cavaliers and they're winning 60 games a year, you couldn't get a ticket into that place. And now he's gone, they're winning 15 games a year. And guess what? It's easy to buy a ticket and there's no money. Detroit's a fantastic place to example uh, of that, too. I mean, you know, before 2006, they weren't doing all that well. And ever since 2006, they've become a, a great market. Philadelphia, Philadelphia, back in the initial days of revenue sharing, was paying into the revenue sharing system. One of the, it was at the time the largest single team market in the country. But they weren't drawing anybody. They started winning. Now that place is packed all the time. You think about the, even the you know the Red Sox before you know the the Pedro Martinez era. They weren't drawing all that well. So you know things can change pretty rapidly. The only place that hasn't really seemed to work, I'd make an argument possibly for Oakland. But it hasn't worked in Tampa Bay, and that's because of the whole thing with the park being in St. Petersburg and the people all being in Tampa and body of water, and that's a whole other discussion. But generally speaking, Patrick, you make the, the key point, which is that if you win, they will come. And I have been to that ballpark in Tampa, and it's a very excellent place to stay away from for, for a number of reasons. Uh, we're talking with Joe Sheehan of the Sheehan Newsletter. Terrific writing about baseball if you're a baseball fan and has a lot of fantasy applications as well. And Joe, you mentioned the Nationals making what looks like a pretty shrewd move to get Edwin Jackson into that rotation for one year and maybe a good move for him as well. But uh, Edwin Jackson is a guy you really quite like. I do. I comped him fair favorably to, Ed, to excuse me to C.J. Wilson at the start of the off season, figuring okay, Wilson is perceived to be greater, but Wilson's got a two year track record as a starter. He's older than Jackson. He doesn't throw as hard as Jackson does. Jackson's got a five year track record. He's actually improved dramatically over his last three seasons. His time spent with Don Cooper in Chicago really seemed to help him throw more strikes. He's younger. He's got a better record of durability. He throws harder. I honestly would have preferred to have Jackson going into this off season. Well, Wilson got seventy seven and a half million. Jackson got 10. So clearly the, the industry has voted on Jackson. I think this is a great signing for the Nationals. 
Uh, you look at the upgrade over the number five spot, it's probably a three-win upgrade. And when you think about where the Nationals were coming into the offseason, this now puts them into that sweet spot where, okay, maybe they were about a 500 team before this. Well, now they're an 84-win team. And if you're an 84-win team going into the season, you can seriously think about the wild card, whether that's we're going to get some overperformance from guys or we're going to get uh, – uh, you know, we're going to get make a trade at the deadline because we're close. A lot of things can happen. So now the Nationals are probably the best that they've looked going into the season, certainly since they got to Washington. Texas Rangers signed Hugh Darvish for a big pile of money, not all of it going to him, of course, uh, half of it going to his former Japanese team. But, boy, when you look at a still unproven commodity, as great as his potential is, there's an argument to be made that maybe Texas should have been looking at Edwin Jackson. There's no question that for six and what are they end up being, $102 million versus one in 10 for Jackson, or you know, let's say a four-year deal for $40 million for Edwin Jackson, I would rather have Jackson. Darvish cannot outpitch Jackson by that much over a period of time. You could argue that there's, there's some affinity, there's some secondary money down the road from having like the, the great Japanese star, a lot of the things that the Mariners benefited for from Ichiro. But you know, the track record of Japanese starting pitchers coming over is very checkered. Just one Japanese starting pitcher, Hideo Nomo, his rookie year, has ever been at the all-star team. And I don't want to say that you know, we have to compare Darvish to Matsuzaka. That's a little simplistic. But I think it's fair to say that five years ago, all the things we're hearing about Darvish, we were hearing about Matsuzaka. Darvish is better. His Japanese stats are better. But I think there's a fundamental difference between how they play baseball in Japan and how they play baseball in the United States that impacts these pitchers. There's, there's no power in the Japanese game. And the strikeout-to-walk ratios are much higher. So it's an easier job for pitchers. Plus, they give away a lot of outs with small ball. And there's not a lot, as many players. It's not just the fact that there's power. The, it's not that there's not enough power across the board. Here in the United States, the eighth and ninth hitters can all take you deep. Pretty much, you know, all the middle infielders and all the catchers can hit a fastball out of the ballpark. Whereas in Japan, that's not the case. And that's a real big difference for pitchers coming over here. So you throw all of that together, and I... The idea that Darvish is going to come over and just instantly take over and be worth all this money, I think there's reasons to question that. Independent of, it's not about Darvish's talent, it's about the difference between Japanese baseball and and, uh, U.S. baseball. I also wonder, uh, we know that Edwin Jackson pitched relatively effectively in St. Louis during the course of a hot and muggy summer, and God knows it's going to be hot and muggy in a Texas summer, and uh, you Darvish, as big and strong as he is, that's a whole different kettle of fish, too, pitching out in that sweltering heat in Texas in late July and early August. It's going to be a, a bit of a difference for him. He's going to have to adjust to that. And obviously, he'll make, he'll make some starts on the road, but you know, it's not fun to go out there in 101 degree heat and, and try to you know, beat the Red Sox. That's, there's not a lot of fun involved in that. So you know, that'll, that'll be an issue. You know, Jackson, you know, he's just in general, he's got you know, more of a track record here in the States. We know that he can pitch in the American League. There's this notion that Jackson, you know, he signed with the Nationals, doesn't want to win. He just won a world championship. He got a ring. I think at this point he was fair to say, you know, I'd like to maximize my earnings. So, uh, I don't know. It'll be very interesting. I think Darvish is a fascinating topic. I'm very much looking forward to getting to see him pitch. But I, when, I, when I have a choice between a guy who's had five good years as a starter in the, in the American League and a guy who's never pitched in the major leagues, I don't think there's $60 million of difference between them. And he doesn't throw the gyro ball, which was such a huge <laughs> success for, uh, for Matsuzaka. Uh, um, 
in one of your recent newsletters, Joe, you talked about a trade that hasn't been made and probably won't be made, but that you think makes a lot of sense to be made, and that is the White Sox send Adam Dunn to the Yankees to get A.J. Burnett. Uh, tell us why you think that would work. Okay, so the Yankees now, having signed to Rookie Kuroda and traded for Michael Pineda, have filled out their rotation. Sabathia at the top, those two guys. You've also got Philip Hughes coming back from injury. You've got Ivan Nova, who was you know, nearly the rookie of the year last year. Manny Benuelos is their top prospect. They've got basically seven starters ready to go at the start of the year. They re-signed Freddy Garcia for insurance. Uh, <clears throat> Deline Batances is another rookie who's coming through the system. Burnett's owed uh, $33 million over the next two years. Obviously, he's, to some extent, he's worn out his welcome here in New York, certainly with the fans. I, I, I'll probably be A.J. Burnett's last fan. Um, I think that the velocity, the stuff still plays, uh, but he may just have to get out of New York. You look at the White Sox with Adam Dunn. Um, obviously, disaster last year. He's owed $44 million over the next three years. The White Sox have shown some desire to save money. You think about the Jackson trade last year. Uh, when they basically did it to dump Mark Tian's contract, and I think it's the seven million he was still owed. So there's a chance you'd go to the White Sox and say, "Look, we'll trade you Burnett for Dunn. You'll save eleven million dollars." Now for the Yankees, it's a little more complicated than that because they're trying to get under the luxury tax threshold in 2014, and this would make it very hard for them to do that. But if you think about aligning the talent, they'd be basically trading their number six starter for something they actually could use, which is a designated hitter. If you're the White Sox, it doesn't make quite as much baseball sense, and then it just becomes a question of do they want to get rid of Dunn's contract as much. Plus, it would enable them to kind of rotate Diane Viciato, whose best pitcher, best position is probably DH, into the DH spot. Paul Canerco, you give him a few more days off in the DH spot. Dunn at this point really can't play in the field. So there are a lot of reasons why this kind of makes sense for both teams. I don't think it'll happen, but I think if, if Cashman were to pick up the phone and call Kenny and say, you want to do this? I think it would be a very difficult conversation. and I think Kenny would really have to think about it. And you'd have to like Burnett's chances of improving with the, with the uh, pitching coaching that they get in Chicago, which has made uh, some pretty decent pitchers out of some pretty previously suspect guys. You know, Don Cooper has done a, a good job with pitchers who have been younger. You know, everybody's got their thing. Dave Duncan is retreads. Well, with Cooper, it's guys who are younger and not established. Think about John Danks and Gavin Floyd and you know, Edwin Jackson to a lesser extent in terms of um, he'd been a little more established. Burnett's not really the kind of guy he fixes, but I would take my chances. I think the question for Burnett is, does going to Cellular, Cellular Park, which is a tough park for fly ball pitchers, is that really necessarily going to help him? So it might not be the greatest trade for him. I think that if you know Yankee fans, as much as Dunn gets a reputation as he strikes out a lot, he has driving runs, Adam Dunn with 81 games with that short porch in right field, that could be a dangerous combination. And he has been, uh, I think, three out of the last four years, drove in 100 despite all the strikeouts, and the Yankees, heaven knows, are going to put guys on base, so it does make sense. And as far as Burnett moving over from Yankee Stadium to to Chicago to U.S. Cellular, man, Yankee Stadium's no, uh, no capacious field either. No, I mean, the thing about U.S. Cellular is that the ball flies a bit better to left, you, Yankee Stadium, your power field is to right, so a little bit of a difference there. But I think Burnett's going to give up home runs in, in, in anywhere he goes. He's going to have 25 to 30 homers a year. He's going to have a relatively high home to fly ball rate. He's going to have a high fly ball rate. But you know, can he do everything else? Can he get the walks back down? Can he miss bats? And you know, can he do the things that made him successful in Miami and in, uh, in, in Toronto and even really in his first year in New York? So you know, a fresh start might be the best thing for him as well. You mentioned Michael Pineda coming over in the trade to join the Yankees rotation, probably in the three slot. And I'm wondering, when we looked at that trade, you had a good analysis of it. There was a lot of 
comment on the uh, internet and amongst baseball analysts that this seemed to be an unusual trade in that you sent a hitter to a bad hitter's park to acquire a pitcher going into a bad pitcher's park. Is that overstated? And for fantasy purposes, how do you like Jesus Montero and Pineda in their new, less favorable environments? I, I like them both. Uh, you know, would I like to Pineda better in, in uh, Safeco? Absolutely. But, you know, if, from a fantasy standpoint, if wins count in your league, Pineda might pitch exactly as well as he would have in New York, excuse me, in Seattle, and get like six more wins for doing it because he's going to be pitching for a better offense with really an exceptional bullpen behind him. Um, I think the A's are in better position to bring Pineda along in that because they have that bullpen. Pineda doesn't have to go seven or eight innings. He gives them six good innings, 95 to 100 pitches. You go to Robertson, Soriano, Rivera, I think they're actually in better position to kind of develop this 22-year-old arm than the Mariners might have been. Obviously, you know, the fly balls are going to go out of the park at, at a greater rate. You can expect the home run to fly ball to tick up. You can expect the ERA to tick up. I think the ratio is going to be pretty much the same. In fact, I think there's growth in terms of his... Remember, this is a guy with a 3-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio last year, and that's phenomenal for a young pitcher. So, I mean, that's, that's the core skill set. You look at the velocity, and you worry about the second-half ERA, but if you look, the second-half skills were pretty much also still there. So there really wasn't the drop-off that it looked like with the ERA. So all things considered, I think Pineda is a very valuable property going into next year and, and certainly has an upside for a starting pitcher that the Yankees haven't had in a young pitcher in a very long time. You look at Montero in Seattle, and the big thing is playing time. He's going to play in, in the bat in the middle of the lineup every day, whether it's DH or catcher, or maybe some, maybe you know, starts to learn first base. I don't know that he necessarily would have gotten that in New York. I think it would have been the DH, but he would have lost time as the Yankees rotated all of their old guys through DH. So he's going to have an opportunity in Seattle. I think the other big thing is that, from what I can tell, he's going to be given the opportunity to catch, and for so that means at least this year. He doesn't start the year as catcher eligible in most formats, but he will pick up catcher eligibility probably sometime in April, and likely as not, he'll catch enough to have catcher eligibility in 2013. I don't think any of that would have been true if he stayed in New York. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Joe Sheehan of the Sheehan Newsletter. One of the best investments you can make if you like baseball, and especially if you like reading good writing about baseball. And Joe, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you about Ryan Braun. Uh, You made a pretty interesting case recently that um, Ryan Braun might be undervalued in baseball in general and in fantasy baseball because of this probable 50-game suspension. But you make a good point that two-thirds of a Ryan Braun season is better than three-thirds of a lot of third baseman seasons. Exactly. You know, I, I he went at uh, the end of the second round in a mock draft I did in December, right after the news broke. I'm in a mock draft right now where he went in the middle of. I actually took him in the middle of the third round. It was only a 13, so it was a 3.8. It was the 34th pick in the draft, and I got to tell you, I think that's incredibly low. You look at some of the other guys that were taken around there, like Adrian Beltre and Mike Napoli, and I don't think there's any question that two thirds of Ryan Braun, which is you know, let's say a 3.10 batting average and 400 at bats, 22 homers, 22 steals. 70, 75 runs in RBIs, and that's, to me, the conservative estimate. I, that's that's two-thirds of a typical Ryan Braun season. The thing is, though, he's 28 this year, and I really, Patrick, I, I, it's a hunch, and I grant, you have to grant me that the, the, I don't have a lot of data to support this. The one guy I pointed to was Tim Raines in 1987, but I got a feeling that if Tim Braun has, uh, Tim Braun, if Ryan Braun has to serve a suspension, he might come back and just go absolutely nuts on the league. Uh whether it's feeling he has to prove himself or just anger at what happened or feeling like he let his teammates down. I really think Ryan Braun's upside from 20, you know, 310, 22, 22, 70, 70 is you know, kind of close to what you're going to get from, say, Matt Holiday, 
or even you know some of the other guys you might be taking in the middle of the second round. So, do I think Ryan Braun's a first round draft pick? No, but do I think he's a middle of the third pick? I think that's insane. I think Ryan Braun, based on what we know right now, is a mid to late second round draft pick, probably closer to mid, and he has upside from there. And it wouldn't surprise me to see a lot of teams at the end of the year win based on having taken Ryan Braun later than he should have gone. Joe, I wasn't going to ask you this, but you mentioned Tim Raines. You did a lot of writing around Hall of Fame time. Is Tim Raines the guy not in the Hall of Fame who most deserves, or is there somebody else? Uh, I can make a case for Ted Simmons. Uh, I think Raines being on the ballot right now kind of you know makes him uh, the candidate. I think a lot of guys fell off the ballot uh, during once they implemented the 5% rule. There were guys like Dwight Evans and Bobby Gritch and Lou Whitaker who really deserved more uh, more attention than they should have gotten. Kevin Brown also uh, is a pitcher who's... Kevin Brown is better than Jack Morris. Let's put it that way. And Kevin Brown's off the ballot, and Jack Morris probably going to the Hall of Fame next year. And Kevin Brown was much better than Jack Morris. So there are a lot of guys. Um, Reigns is the one currently on the ballot, who so he's going to get the attention. But, you know, I, 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 Alan Trammell you know, is another guy who, who, who should be there. So... Patrick, the Hall of Fame's kind of become a very strange place where you know guys like Rice, Souter, Puckett, probably Morris, Tony Perez are getting elected, and all of these great players who were clearly better than these guys are being left out and, and shunned. That's only going to get more strange next year. But I think, Joe, that that whole thing is going to change as some of the uh, the old baseball writers start to die off and, and get replaced by younger guys with some experience and some exposure to sabermetric analysis and skills analysis and the understanding that pitchers' wins aren't as important as a lot of other things. That community really pushed Burt Blylevin into the Hall of Fame, in my view, and I think that maybe Tim Raines and Trammell could be their next um, hobby horses that they really want to get behind and start shoving. And, and when they do, there's a lot of pressure on on voters, especially not the real old guys, but the guys in the middle who've been around 15 years or 20, to not look like they're behind the curve on this. And I, I wonder if you're going to start seeing the benefits of proper baseball analysis even before those uh, that, that, that community gets a lot of votes. Well, I mean, there's a aging effect that will happen. You know, older older voters will stop voting, and younger voters will get the vote. But let's not underestimate how long that takes. Too, it takes ten years in the BBWA to just get a vote. So this is there's a delay to this. It's going to be too late for Trammell. Trammell doesn't have enough time left on the ballot. Reigns, I think, will eventually get in. But <clears throat> let's not forget that electing Jack, excuse me, electing Burp Bly Eleven, which was uh, the right thing to do, is clearly overqualified. That effect that is it had the effect of getting Jack Boris elected. I expect Morris to go in one of the next two ballots. And a lot of that is the backlash from the Burp Lyleven experience. And I'm not sure necessarily that the Hall of Fame is a better place when you've got all these BBWA elected Hall of Famers that are so far below the line that it creates a massive gray area to now where you go, well, all of these guys were better than Morris and Rice and Souter. How can they not be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, but I'll take Burp Lyleven as a genuine Hall of Fame candidate pretty much any old day. The shame is that it took 13 years. It really is. It, it really is. Did you hear the story about Peter Gammons coming up to Burt Blylevin and asking him for an interview? And uh, Blylevin was talking about this on a Twins broadcast, I think, and he said Peter Gammons had just finished writing a big article that Burt Blylevin didn't belong in the Hall of Fame, and so he came up to Blylevin and he says, now that you're in, how about an interview? And I guess Blylevin told him to go shove it, and good for him. Sounds like Burt Blylevin to me. Yeah, it does. Joe, uh, tell our listeners how they can find out more about the Sheehan newsletter and uh, how to subscribe. The best way to find out about all things that I'm working on is on my Twitter feed, at Joe underscore 
Sheehan. The underscore is important. There's a nice man in St. Louis who also shares my name who gets a lot of my uh, followers, so use the underscore. Uh, check out joesheehan.com. That has information on my radio spots and what I'm doing for Sports Illustrated. Using an excerpt from the newsletter. You can also find out about the newsletter there. Um, you can also see me in the pages of Sports Illustrated at si.com and on the MLB Network where I've been contributing to both Clubhouse Confidential and the uh, Top Ten series, which were counting down all the various Top Ten at each position in Major League Baseball. So the best way to get, let's say, all of that, at Joe underscore Sheehan on Twitter. I hope people will check out the newsletter. I think we're done a good job for two years now, and I'm hoping that uh, we have a big, successful uh, 2012. And, you know, Patrick, I appreciate the kind words about it. And, uh, you know, obviously the model here, to some extent, is HQ runs. Obviously been doing this for a very long time. And I've always believed that if you put out good content, People will pay for it, and Ron is one of the models for that. Joe, uh, all of these things, to hell with uh, Howard Stern. You're the king of all media. Let's not go that far. (laughs) All right. Joe Sheehan, thanks very much for doing this. We'll try to catch up with you again during the year. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. Joe Sheehan is the author of the Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. As he said, you can find out about that at uh, joesheehan.com or at Joe underscore Sheehan on the Twitter feed. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his Market Pulse segment. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon comes back to the show to tell us about Kansas City outfield prospect Will Myers. Kansas City Royals' Will Myers remains one of the best hitting prospects in baseball. Despite having mixed results in 2011, the 21-year-old outfielder actually moved up our top 100 prospect list and now sits at number 10 overall. Myers cut his knee this past spring, and when the cut became infected, he was sidelined for over a month. He returned slowly and looked out of sync for much of the season and ended up hitting just 254 with eight home runs, causing some to question his prospect status. Myers silenced those skeptics with a blistering effort in the Arizona Fall League where he was one of the most dangerous hitters in the circuit, hitting 360 with a 481 on base percentage and a 674 slugging percentage. He had five doubles, five triples, and four home runs in 86 at-bats. Myers is an average defender in the outfield and has below average speed, but offensively he has fantastic potential. He has solid plate discipline plus bat speed and should be able to hit for average with good power. If everything comes together, Will Myers has the potential to be a 300 hitter with 20-plus home runs on a regular basis and gives the Kansas City Royals yet another exciting young player. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. Rob Gordon has regular organizational reports and prospect updates. Jeremy Deloney reports every day on minor leaguers called up to the big leagues. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, well, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about scarcity at first base. Scarcity at first base? Absolutely. And we've been telling you that for the last several years here at BaseballHQ.com. So many people, as we talked about last week, overplay the scarcity card at 
positions like catcher, second base, shortstop. But we have always set forth that you're going to lose so many counting stats to try to play that scarcity card and miss out overall. One of the reasons first base we've long touted as a scarce resource is that often other managers go to that position to fill their corner infield and designated hitter positions. So even though you may have 15 very good first basemen, when you add in the corner infielder and DH effects, you're going to need 30 often for a 15-team league. In 2012, however, first base is scarce on its own. There are only seven reliable first base options, and they will most likely be gone by the time the the fourth round starts. Then you have to take a chance on three pretty good players who are either rebound candidates like Mike Morse or up-and-coming rookies like Eric Hosmer and Freddie Freeman. Both decent picks, probably going to succeed, but this is only their second year. We've all heard of the sophomore slump. If you don't roster one of those first seven first basemen, you have going to be diving into the deep pool of unknowns, of low averages, injury rehabs, second-year players, guys with high average, no power. These are not the kind of guys you normally expect to roster at first base. So I advocate more than ever in 2012, if you need a first baseman and there's one there in those first three rounds and he's right there on your draft board, do not overplay the scarcity card at a typical position. Instead, realize the scarcity at the first base position and take that Mark Teixeira or Paul Konerko while you can, or you're going to find yourself backfilling in a difficult manner at the end of the draft. With the Market Pulse for BaseballHQ.com, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about the Adam Dunn conundrum. Adam Dunn. What the heck do you do with Adam Dunn? After many years of consistent high-level performance, Dunn fell off the face of the earth in 2011. Every year, 40-ish homers, 100 RBIs. In 2011, he went yard a mere 11 times with 42 RBIs. Every year, a 250-ish batting average. In 2011, more than 90 points of that went MIA. It was a disaster. How bad was it? I had him on two of my Experts League teams last year. On one of them, I only managed to get him off my roster by trading him, straight up, for Jake Arrieta. So now it's coming up on spring, despite what Punxsutawney Phil says, and with it a new beginning. What should we do with Adam Dunn? For starters, 2012 can never be as bad as 2011. Why? Well, first we know that we won't have as much invested in him, so any loss won't be as severe. And odds are, if he does repeat last year's debacle, he'll be an easy cut. Any replacement will be better. But odds are his numbers will be better. Regression alone points to that. A hit rate that was nearly 10% below historical levels points to some normalization of his batting average. His home run to fly ball rate should improve. Opposite field home runs is usually a good leading indicator of power skill, and despite him hitting only 11 total homers last year, 18% were opposite field, a level right in line with his history. Early draft results have been interesting. In the XFL Experts League, a keeper league that holds its first stage draft in November, Dunn went for $12. In the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Experts League draft in January, a 13-team snake redraft league, Dunn went in the end of the 13th round, 
which is equivalent to a $9 player. His current average draft position at Mock Draft Central is 274, or 19th round in a 15-team league. The highest he's gone is 139, a 10th round pick. Bill James' plexiglass principle states that a player or a team will normalize after a spike or plummet, but in many cases the extent of that normalization will be in direct relationship to the extent of the spike or plummet. Dunn's 2011 season was extreme, and so completely out of character with his history that it's tough to think he's not going to see some significant improvement. Recall David Wright. After several seasons of 30 home run power, he plummeted to 10 homers in 2009. His bounce back season brought him back right in line with his previous power levels. That's not to say that Dunn is going to return to the 40 home run plateau in 2012, but it is not to completely dismiss it either. I think a 30 homer 240 season is well within a reasonable range of expectation, and 35 homers could be right there as well. That would be a potential $15 to $18 buy, or a 6th to 8th round pick. But let's be a bit more conservative. What's a 25 homer 240 player worth? Well, last year Alfonso Soriano hit 26 home runs with a 244 average. His value was $9 in a mixed league. Carlos Pena hit 28 homers with a 225 average. That's $8. Converting to a snake draft, those are about 14th round numbers. So his 13th round grab in the FSTA draft was a good spot. I think he could do better. But should you reach for that? Clearly not. The ADP say you don't have to. But 12th to 13th round is there for the taking. A 10 to $12 buy should be enough as well. And that means there could be some built-in profit in virtually any bid or rank for Adam Dunn this year. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column that appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about fixed-price free agent acquisition. Ron also discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com, and you can get his master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter just by going to BaseballHQ.com and signing up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 4th and show number 3 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Tell your friends about our show. And take a second to go to iTunes and give us five stars. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio where there's an archive of past editions as well. Be sure to check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. I also want to thank our guest today starting with Joe Sheehan who does a great job with that newsletter and all his reporting. Also want to thank our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols for the National League and Matt Beagle for the American League. Matt was also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator, as always, was BaseballHQ.com publisher and Hall of Famer Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Doug Dennis's look at Major League Bullpen Plan B's and Pat DiCaprio's analysis which roto rules are safe to break. 
Also, Bill Macy has some research on the importance of early round top dollar players. Plus, we'll have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, and buyer's guides. I'm Patrick Davitt. My next batting buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com comes out on February 17th, the same day as I have a Roto Strategy column about how to make those difficult keeper decisions. In the meantime, hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.